0: Hello everyone, it's April 23rd, 2019. This week we're talking to Carrie Bean about the Opportunity Rover and everything she and the folks at JPL did to try and save her. I think the key is to not give up, and they really didn't. Alright, let's get to it, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower, welcome to episode 207 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast, I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. Welcome back, Dennis. Thanks. Did you have a good uh, week off?
1: Yeah, it was, well, yeah, the, uh, the field trip we went on was great actually got to check out one of the telescopes I spent time at a lot when I was up there the Bach 90 inch did you see anything new not this time last fall or i guess in december when i took them i did see the spacewatch ones which is an asteroid tracking survey but uh mm-hmm. nothing new but again i mean i've been there 8 times and this is just in terms of field trips yeah. i've gone there 8 times <laughs> yeah 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 but i always learn new things which is cool like uh i was under i was under the mistaken understanding that one of the uh, telescopes that was part of the Event Horizon Telescope Network was on Kitt Peak, but it's actually the one that's on Mount Graham. There's too many telescopes in southern Arizona for me to keep track mm-hmm. of, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't leave anybody on the mountain, so all's well.
0: <laughs> I guess you're still responsible for, like, you know, accounting for everyone, mm-hmm. even though these are obviously college students. They, they should be accountable for themselves, I would think. But
1: you, You'd think that. Um, <laughs> the, the students are great, but I I don't want to say that they're the most responsible when it comes to this. It's like herding cats, but I've outsmarted them. So what would happen in the past is I Uh, would get uh, a lot of them to sign up and then a ton of no no shows, you know, no call, no show canceling people. And it was very frustrating to try to, you know, I got to rent vans from our motor pool. You know, I got to try to. Take care of the logistics? How much money am I going to get reimbursed for? And so, what I did was I just kept data, and it's remarkably consistent with little scatter that about 50% of them end up just canceling at some point. Wow. That's so crazy. So, I had 67 people signed up. I budgeted for 32, <laughs> and yep. 29 came. So, <laughs> It worked out. You're in the ballpark. (laughs) So I outsmarted them.
2: I mean, you know, I I was a college student. I live in a college town.
1: None of this is surprising, but that's still,
2: Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty good results.
1: Yeah, they're always, you know, Saturday or Sunday mornings, and I think that really gets them. They might be jazzed up and excited, and then it's like mm-hmm. the night before, they're like, I'm not waking up at 7 a.m. to get to campus. At yeah. <laughs> it's so weird.
0: It makes sense, although I will say in this case, it's such a cool trip to make. I, yeah. I, I don't know mm. why they would want to miss it because, I mean, I would love to go to Kit Peak.
2: Yeah, and oh, yeah. there's probably free food involved.
1: The food is actually a, 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 a weird situation where all they have up there is basically some candy bars and chips and, you know, coffee and water so i tell them they got to bring their own lunch but again you know you can't count on everybody remembering that so i've learned to pack extra sandwiches and you know fruit and snacks for them so so yeah they do get free food but it's you know it's food made by me so. yeah <laughs> <laughs> although to be fair i made rubens which you know like not everybody likes Oof. rubens but that was for me mostly <laughs> did uh, wait so uh
2: sorry we gotta have a food talk so did you use uh like pre-sliced
1: roast beef from the deli, or uh, not roast beef, uh, corned beef,
2: or did you like make corned beef?
1: No, no, I just grabbed, yeah, like from the, actually, yeah, I got sliced, -sliced, pre-sliced cold cuts, essentially. Yeah, but I did make my own Thousand Island Dressing which I guess mm. technically is a thing. <laughs> I just happen to have all yeah, the ingredients I mean, in the fridge. <laughs> yeah,
2: mixing. And uh, you do sauerkraut. And how did you keep the bread from going completely soggy?
1: Uh, sauerkraut, yes. Uh, the bread, basically, I just did it that morning. And so I just had time. Like, you know, it, oh, it, okay. it wasn't crispy and fresh, but it wasn't well, uh, too soggy. Mm-hmm. So, I kind of have to split that difference.
0: Good food talk. And uh, let's move on to this week in space flight history. And who are our winners, Ben?
1: I'm the winner.
2: Woo-hoo. Yep. <laughs> it, it's one of those things where, you know, my name goes in the winner's slot, but in reality, we all lose because the clue wasn't very good. And I, I said that nobody was going to guess it last week, and I went on with it anyway. So, the clue last week was I remember seeing rocket contrails above the mountains. And this week in spaceflight history is the 23rd of April, 1957. It was. Uh, the day that Vandenberg was established. So the very bad clue relies on you knowing my personal history, which is that I grew up at Edwards Air Force Base. And from Edwards, you can see rocket launches at Vandenberg because they leave you know huge contrails in the sky, and y- you can see it um, from very far away. And so I remember as a kid not being able to tell the difference between a rocket contrail and an airplane contrail. And every once in a while, my parents would point out, hey, that's that's a rocket. It's like ah okay cool you know like I had no idea of the scale I you know didn't know what was involved there. So Vandenberg was not established either as Vandenberg or as an Air Force base. Uh, it was originally called Camp Cook, and it was an Army base. So the Army originally bought it in 1941 as part of you know World War II. and until the end of the war they basically trained as hard as they could and they trained all sorts of units um but in particular they trained infantry and armored units which made a bunch of noise and i'm assuming was a little annoying to the neighbors even though you know it's world war 2 and uh, total war, and you know, su- suck it up and and be proud of your country or whatever. Um, but they, I mean, they also trained medical units and engineers and all you know, all sorts of people. And uh, in 1957. Uh, the Air Force uh, took over most of the base. So the the base was 86,000 acres. And in 1957, the Air Force took over 64,000 acres. And uh, they turned it into a training base where they trained uh air force personnel on uh how to launch and maintain rockets specifically you know missiles so uh small rockets with explody bits on the on the top and it it was considered you know kind of a contingency launch site they didn't plan to do any launches from there until 1957 uh you know when Sputnik happened and they very quickly decided oh yeah Vandenberg's a good place to to launch rockets Um, potentially, you know, towards the West, (laughs) (laughs) I I guess, I guess more North than West, but anyway, from the end of 1964 to the beginning of 1965, there was this process of the Air Force um, taking over the rest of the base. So initially, you know, it was split between A little bit of Army and mostly U.S. Air Force. And then the Army gave their bit to the Navy. And so, you know, in 1965, um, the Air Force took all of the property. And then, um, interesting note here, around that time, uh, you could actually land at Vandenberg in a commercial airliner. And you weren't allowed to get off the plane uh, unless the Air Force allowed you to. (laughs) but there was a commercial airline servicing vandenberg which is pretty cool um so then uh moving on in 1966 um the base expanded again um they annexed additional land to cover launch paths because they were getting ready to start launching the manned orbital laboratory um, which we've talked about on the show and the overflight paths you know because vandenberg is not directly on the ocean or at least it wasn't and so they were going to overfly some some property and they did not purchase it. They annexed it. Mm -hmm. Um, So camp cook, when it was originally purchased, most of it was actually purchased legitimately. Some of it, they had to lease um, some of it. They used eminent domain to take, but uh, for manned orbiting laboratory, they said, Hey, Hey, you have land that we need. We're going to take it from you. And they ended up paying, I think, like $9 million or something. And they also paid interest because they didn't pay it all in one lump sum. Uh, but yeah, you know, people lost their land for this. And so at that point, they bumped their uh, their area up to 99,099 acres. And that made them the third largest USAF base after... Um, there's one in Florida, I forget the one, the name of the one in Florida. And then there's, uh, Edwards air force base, um, you know, just next door. So, uh, now that they're, you know, uh, on a, uh, full fledged, uh, launch site, you know, they did a bunch of missile testing. I- I'm pretty sure we've never fired any missiles in anger from, from Vandenberg. Uh, but then of course We know Vandenberg as a a space launch complex, Uh, notably uh, Discoverer-1, a.k.a. Corona-1, which was a spy satellite, was launched on the 20th of February, 1959, and that was the first polar satellite. Um, And then, you know, there were a bunch of other launches, so uh, Slick-6 was modified to be a potential shuttle launch site. Um, I didn't know this, but they also modified a runway for shuttle. Like they um, installed a bunch of equipment to make this runway a potential landing site. They built a mate D mate device that was, you know, a lot skinnier than the one at. Edwards and the one uh, at Cape Canaveral. But you know they, they built a, an actual mate D-mate device. And they also, this is really cool. So Slick6 never would have had a mobile launcher platform. Um, they actually were going to have um, an integration facility that rolled up to the pad, build shuttle on the pad, and then roll the integration facility away, roll this building away, Um, which is really interesting. Like There are people who do that, but not very many. I didn't realize that if Shuttle actually would have launched from Vandenberg, that's the way it would have (laughs) happened. That's pretty cool. That's neat. Yeah. Of course, Delta IV launched from Vandenberg. Uh, Atlas V, uh, all the X-37B launches have been out of Vandenberg. Falcon 9 has launched out of Vandenberg. So it's kind of a little corner of the space launch industry it's not the most heavily used or easy to uh oh, i guess most inclusive like there haven't been that many orbital rockets that have launched out of there but you know it's 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 still nice because it's it's close to my home and close to my heart
0: you know well i mean it, it's actually very necessary because you know if you want to launch yeah. to certain inclinations then you have to use it so yeah we have to have it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, And it's interesting that, you know, when, when Americans want to launch polar, well, like sun synchronous orbits, you know, you have to go out of Vandenberg and you have to go either to SpaceX or to ULA. If you want to launch off of American soil, that's pretty much your choice. I mean, you know, that's, that's not limiting the the field very much because there aren't that many other (laughs) uh, launch contractors, but you know, it's just interesting watching the the puzzle piece, or you know, the game pieces move around the board, as you know, you everything is strategy. Like you have to pick what's available, and this is what's available. I don't know if that's if that's at all interesting to talk about, but that's that's kind of what floats around my head.
0: Although, same in the chat points out that you could use Kodiak in order to launch into a polar orbit, but I don't know how, like, c- who launches c- out of Kodiak. That c- you could, yeah.
2: you couldn't fly a sun synchronous. Oh, yeah, you could fly sun synchronous out of Kodiak.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh
2: you could. Have, haven't yet done it.
0: <laughs> but I don't think that ULA launches from there, right? Like, you can't launch a big old, like, you can't launch know. large rockets from there.
2: Oh, okay, or yeah. Orbitals times. launched a few times out of Kodiak. Okay, you're right. Yep. They've also launched, you know, off of an airplane. So that, that does expand your, your pol- polar uh, options. Okay, yeah. Spoke too soon.
0: Well, speak to us now the clue for next week.
2: All right. Next week in 1961, the clue is birth of a protein tradition.
0: All right. So if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag This Week SF and good luck. Dragon 2 capsule explodes during testing. So this all went up in some red-orange smoke. And <laughs> we just found out about this, what, yesterday afternoon? Yeah, or it, this is breaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is breaking news. And I saw a tweet about it probably like pretty late, actually, like 7 or 8 o'clock p.m. my time, which I guess isn't too long after it happened. So we haven't had much time to sort of figure out what has happened and there just isn't much information so this was a test of the super dracos and what do we know like shortly before actual super draco ignition that's when something went wrong and we saw a huge explosion
2: cbs broke the news like the explosion was so big that somebody on a beach was able to take a photo of it Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah
1: scary evidently there was a series of tests that they were doing near lz1 we've never let spec. We've never shied away from speculating. <laughs> <laughs> Rushed head
2: towards it, some might say.
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> but these are speculations that are trying to capture what we've come up with ourselves, what we've seen other people coming up with. Um, but at the end of the day, a lot of this is unofficial reports and just people kind of throwing out their ideas. But from yeah. that, we can piece together some kind of picture, I think. And it does seem... Uh, One of the more well-established things is that there was a series of tests. This actually came from the SpaceX people themselves. So there were multiple tests. Presumably the initial ones were related to the Draco engines. And then it was the final test that was the one that suffered the anomaly. Kind of by definition, right? There wasn't going to be another. But I guess it was planned to be the final test, right? And uh, that was, you know, presumably going to be, you know, testing one of the Super Dracos or all of the Super Dracos maybe and then, uh, yeah, and then the anomaly happened, and you had the big the b f r c right the big something red cloud, fuming uh, red cloud, yeah,
2: <laughs> uh big falcon red cloud, and uh we're we're gonna i've got a link in the show notes uh to uh, Aaron Cross's hypergolics talk on episode 199, because <laughs> it's mm-hmm.
1: uh, it's appropriate. Yeah, This cloud had its color, right, because it, you know, from the hypergolics in the supercriticals. Yeah. So, irregardless yeah. of what the cause of the explosion was, those hypergolics kind of, they did their thing, and we saw right. the kind of quintessential... Reddish yeah, we,
2: we, we liberated some nitrogen tetroxide. By the way, the super dracos are fueled by nitrogen tetroxide and monomethyl hydrazine, uh, NTO and MMH. But it's the NTO that actually makes this color. Uh, I believe MMH is, is colorless. So this dragon is the same one that launched on DM1 um the f- you know it's the first crew dragon that's been in space and a lot of people have been talking about how since it went to space it also went to the ocean and now we have a crew dragon that was you know soaking in one of the most corrosive substances on the face of the earth. One of the the, the most corrosive, plentiful substance on the face mm. of the earth. It was soaking in this drink for for an hour, and that isn't necessarily going to cause this issue, but it could have, it it might have caused this issue. It might have caused an issue upstream of this issue that kind of cascaded down. And all of that was super interesting and valid before we saw a video of it and got a little better idea of what happened but it's it's worth mentioning uh here at the beginning anyway um let's see going down our show notes oh yeah the uh the red clouds were big enough to be seen on radar that's there's that's a, a wild. gif from yeah there's a gif from gis rockstar on twitter that and, and i love whenever this happens like you know, there are some animal migrations you can see, like uh, bats leaving caves all at once that you can see on radar. So I, I like weird things like this that show up on radar, which is like, hey, get out of the way. I'm trying to look at clouds.
0: One good thing is that we saw that that cloud was being carried out to sea. So at least it wasn't being blown back over land because, yes, you know, yeah, that would point. suck.
2: Yeah, so if you guys were on the beach and you saw an orange cloud coming from the direction of a rocket test facility, would you leave immediately? Because I would, even if yep. know, I was like, okay, mm-hmm. well, if, if there was any danger to me they would be sure to clear out the area i'd be like
1: no i'm i'm out of here period yeah exactly Yeah, because you don't need too much high uh, you don't need that high concentrations to get you know seriously ill from this so even if you're not in thick smoke i would be afraid of just yeah again being exposed to any significant amount of
0: it yeah because you'll just get cancer in five years instead Mm -hmm. of die tomorrow Mm -hmm. yeah right
2: this cloud is known by the state of california to cause cancer (laughs) everything every cloud
0: is is. is. <laughs> I do love those California warning labels that you see on everything and I don't live there, but they're still on all products. You
2: yeah. Know? Yeah. You've never been to California. Pretty much every restaurant has one in their window.
0: I wouldn't be surprised if it was just like printed on paper itself because like paper somehow causes cancer. <laughs> yeah. You buy a notebook.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can, we can go down a rabbit hole, but it's like, I, I appreciate making people aware of their surroundings and, and cognizant of dangers, but sometimes it's just not helpful.
0: And it's especially not helpful if you put that on everything yeah. then you don't have any That'll real from a effect. reference cushion. Yeah.
2: yeah, we need a
1: gradation.
0: Anyway, um <laughs> back to space, I guess. <laughs> so <laughs> so
1: uh, where's the fault and what should we worry about?
0: Well, so so we saw some video of what happened and it's not great, but I think it can be safely assumed that this was not a problem that directly relates to the super Dracos because I just can't imagine an explosion like that happening so quickly and so so violently given how uh, these things are actually secured within um I don't remember what, like what they're called but they're meant to contain the explosion if there is an anomaly yeah they're
2: like armored cages basically
0: yeah but this was a much larger explosion plus it doesn't appear to have happened within the thruster itself although it's hard to say exactly where but mm-hmm. yeah roughly like what like halfway up the capsule maybe
1: yeah that's what i would i would from just eyeballing it myself it was tough because like you said it happened so fast you just have one frame of a perfectly looking Mm -hmm. dragon 2 and then the next frame is just a big white light but you know as you watch the explosion evolve it isn't particularly centered on or near the pods where the uh, super dracos are hosted and so Mm -hmm. assuming that it originated with the well, actually, I, I I'm starting to change my mind in the middle of talking about this, right? Mm-hmm. Some people have been speculating about maybe it's not actually involved with the capsule itself, but the ground support structures. But based on where the explosion was, it seemed to have originated. Yeah, it in doesn't. Mean, it middle. looks
2: like the umbilicals are on the other side, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. So I don't know, but we did get this uh, scary unconfirmed report from the Florida Today, because like you had mentioned, right? This was such a big thing that you know people outside the space you know world were couldn't help noticing it and so unconfirmed here's the quote unconfirmed reports indicated that the capsule was destroyed so that's uh not coming from us but it certainly seems consistent with the footage and just how violent the explosion was
2: yeah so so if it's not if it's not a Super Draco, one of the guesses that people were having was that it's one of the COPVs,
1: which is
2: interesting because a, a single COPV popping wouldn't cause this big of an explosion. But a COPV popping next to uh, a fuel tank, definite, I mean, we're talking about hypergols, right? As soon as you mix them, they're chemically designed to be explosive on contacts. Right. Um, so it doesn't take much uh, you know, you just liberate a little bit and they do the rest on their own. So it seems like a possibility, but something about it just doesn't seem 100% right to me. I think it's mostly the fact that SpaceX has already had an issue with the COPV. So it seems like a kind of a cheap First thing to go to. Um, sure, sure. Uh, and I'm sure that there's, you know, more informed decision behind it than just that. But it, it seems like pulling out the next card and the cards against humanity deck and going, uh, carbon over pressure v- vessel. <laughs> You know and, and laying right. it down on your card
0: one other reason f- that they are making that guess is because uh, the super Dracos weren't even on you know like there was so yeah uh-huh. I think this was like eight seconds before ignition or something like that right okay.
1: there was a yeah there was a countdown that made it to eight I really can't wait to see the post-mortem and kind of get you know, an idea of what really yeah. happened. Sam in the chat says,
2: COPVs have been a standard for a long time as well. Uh, it wouldn't be strange for... It, it would be strange for one to fail. Falcon COPVs are submerged in locks, which is new, but these ones aren't. You're right, exactly. So it, it seems weird to kind of just jump to COPVs. It's it's like, like a word association game.
0: Well, could you speculate on on what else could have caused this? Because, I mean, <laughs> no. I'm guessing then it would have to be... It would probably have to do with the hypergolics, but what could cause them to so quickly come into contact, I yeah. guess would be the question. Cause I don't know what else could create that kind of explosive force.
2: I mean, if they were, if they were currently loading in fuel, like that's always a dangerous time, but I don't know. I, you got to remember the thing, the thing has been dunked in salt water, So, you know, they're, they're, it doesn't seem like saltwater ingress into the engines would have been an issue because A, I don't know if there were engines installed on, the, uh, on it before, and B, this explosion doesn't appear to have happened within the the engine nacelle. Oh, we have engine nacelles now. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, they're not warp engine nacelles, but um, no. <laughs> yeah, these might be the first nacelles in space. No, that's not true. That's not true. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Easily detected, <laughs> but you know, uh, salt water—if it ingressed somewhere where there's a valve, that valve might be susceptible to you know gasket um, degradation or something. And that I don't know. I would um, treat my speculation and both of your guys' speculation with ten-foot pole kind of caution, yeah. and just as much for anybody else because we are really solidly in speculation land. On Sunday, maybe on Tuesday when this episode comes out, we'll, we'll have uh, more information as a community. But
0: So that kind of raises my next question, is how much information do you think will actually be released? Because, you know, this seems to be a bit of a touchy subject because this is a vehicle that at some point will be carrying crew. And so some are saying that SpaceX might not say much. And this is actually a very weird event in that I still don't think that we've heard any tweets from SpaceX or from Elon Musk, nah. but even from Elon yeah. Musk himself, right, which right, usually right. he says something.
1: Surprisingly but- quiet. It
2: means he's mm-hmm. busy.
0: <laughs> he's always busy.
2: Well, he's he's super busy trying to figure this out, mm, I yeah. bet you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the 12-year-old CEO um is not going to keep his mouth shut for very long, I don't think.
0: Yeah. But there's probably people in this case saying, "Hey, don't tweet anything that <laughs> yeah.
2: somebody somebody take his phone." <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Step one during an anomaly, uh, take Mr. Musk's phone. That probably should be on the first and page. And the other
2: phone, and the secret phone, and the Galaxy Fold tucked in his
0: sock. That's a big phone to tuck on your sock. It folds up, though.
2: And that one, the Galaxy Fold isn't too bad, because they, as long as they can keep him off it for a day, uh, it'll just kill itself, and uh, it won't yeah. be a problem.
0: Yeah, it'll break. Yeah, so I don't know how much we're going to find out. Hopefully something soon, I would love to know.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it, if it was you know, Astra Space Systems... Forget it. You're not hearing about it until uh, the White House declassifies it. If it was ULA, in a couple of months we'll hear something on uh, on the L2 forums or something. If it's SpaceX, just wait. It's going to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, the fans are too vicious. The company is too interested in keeping their fans happy. And then on top of that, we have Elon Musk, who can't keep his mouth shut.
0: And I think that if it was Blue Origin, we wouldn't even know about it. Cause, oh right,
2: uh... yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. If it was Blue Origin, wouldn't it, wouldn't have it got there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so this sucks for, uh you know, commercial crew.
2: And it's funny that this happened right after, uh, earlier this week, uh, NASA bought some Soyuz seats because they weren't sure that commercial crew was going to be ready. And boy, was was that a prescient decision.
0: I didn't know that they bought some Soyuz seats, actually. Yeah, they
2: bought two, two more seats on Soyuz. They were unoccupied seats, so they weren't as
1: expensive as they could have been. But um, but yeah, I thought we were done doing that. I guess we have really no idea kind of what type of delay this is going to put into... uh dm2
2: if they solve it pretty quickly maybe one of those things where they're like oh we know exactly what happened and we fixed it and it's not a problem we were loading fuels in a way that we would never do during an actual launch or something like that you know mm-hmm. but yeah we really don't know so uh moving forward um, what do we worry about? Initially, the first thing that I was thinking was, you know, engine out capability, and oh, not just me. Like a lot of people were thinking about this. If you know, if this, it, we, you know, it happened during a Super Draco test. We thought it was related to the Super Dracos. If a Super Draco fails and it destroys the capsule, boy, that doesn't feel like a a good position to be in as a potential dragon rider. But I th- I think we can pretty much put that one to bed. Uh, water landings. Are we going to be able to do reuse if we dunk things in the ocean?
0: I don't think that that was ever going to be an issue with NASA because they right. were they going wanted... to always have a new Dragon. So, yeah. yeah.
2: Um, the, this this might actually call into question the maturity of SpaceX's ability to reuse equipment. Uh, kind of in general. Um, we've seen a lot of you know flight-tested boosters, and that's that's great. But those things aren't landing in the water and uh, they get pretty heavy refurbishment. This isn't to say that I think that SpaceX is never going to be able to do
1: reusability,
2: but maybe it's not as mature as we would have hoped at this point. Maybe it's something that still needs to be worked on.
1: You're right. I mean, if anyone, you know, thought that this was as easy as, you know, it looks like, right? We talk yeah. about how boring these launches seem to be now, but um, it's it's hard. And, you know, this might just be another kind of wrench in the works is recognizing the effects of water on the ones that, you know, do splash down.
0: The Dragon 2 is new. The boosters, they seem to be doing pretty well. It's kind of like they have ironed out the bugs with the actual first stages. But the Dragon 2, it might be another year or two before we can get rid of these anomalies. And then I think they'll be pretty well on their way.
2: And and they are very different vehicles, right? The boosters don't have... Uh, such stringent mass and volume restrictions—they don't have payload, right? Because the the booster is like, or the uh, the capsule is almost all payload, you know, which really restricts what they can do or constricts what they can do. You know, the boosters have you know very complex engines, but they're built around the engines, whereas the capsule has less complex engines, but they're built around the center core. So you know, they they are very different animals.
0: Moving on to short and sweet, Uh, what's our first one, Ben? All
2: right, SpaceX loses a booster to rough seats. Uh, or half a booster uh the center core of the recently launched falcon heavy didn't entirely make it back to port canaveral due to rough seas which caused the booster to topple over on the drone ship roughly two-thirds of the upper part of the core broke off and fell into the ocean though the nine merlin engines remained on board normally the booster would be secured to the drone ship by the Octo Grabber or welded boots However, the configuration of the Falcon Heavy variant of the booster made this impossible. Fortunately, future launches of the Falcon Heavy will be compatible with the OctoGrabber.
0: And next up, an update on Beresheet. Space has released further details on the failed Beresheet lunar lander. Engineers have determined that an errant command triggered a series of events that doomed the lander. The command was meant to simply fix an issue with the lander's inertial measurement unit. However, this resulted in an engine shutdown during the final descent. Officials at Space Isle will continue with the investigation and will be releasing more details in the coming weeks.
1: And finally, Intelsat 29E is declared a total loss. After only three years in geostationary orbit, Intelsat 29E suffered a fuel leak on April 7th. Shortly after, there were communication gaps with the satellite. On April 8th, commercial telescope operators were able to confirm that the spacecraft is drifting east from its orbital position at 50 degrees west longitude. Intelsat and the satellite's manufacturer, Boeing, have formed a failure review board to investigate the cause of the anomaly.
0: This week we have with us Carrie Bean and she's going to be talking to us about Opportunity, the rover. Okay, so according to your... Twitter description, you are the final tactical uplink lead for Oppie. So I guess that means final as in the last one, right? And yep. welcome to the show. Sorry, I just had to ask that question <laughs> first because that's pretty amazing. So um, did you want to talk a little bit about exactly what you do there and what that whole experience has been and maybe continues to be like? Because I don't know if it's completely over for you just yet as far as opportunity goes, I should say.
3: Yeah. So I've actually been a part kind of on and off of Opportunity's team since... Like August of two thousand seven, that that point I was starting out on the science team. I was just a little freshman college student whose professor was like, "Hey, do you want to come sit in my office and listen to Mars rover planning meetings all day?" And who's gonna say no to that, right?
2: Right. <laughs>
3: so I went and looked. So that was Sol one thousand two hundred and seventy seven, right as we were coming out of the two thousand seven global dust storm. So I got to see her through the end of the last one and all the way through this one, and so. I basically started out working on her science team, doing science stuff. So I had an undergraduate master's thesis studying spirit data, actually. So occasionally they would wake up in the middle of the night, take pictures of stars, and they took mm. them for looking for meteors and all sorts of other reasons, and. I studied atmospheric optical depth. And so normally you take a picture of the sun and you figure out how much stuff is in the atmosphere based on how bright the sun is in the camera. Well, you can't really take a picture of the sun at night. And so I used the stars instead to figure that out. And so I went on working on Curiosity and then dabbled in Hubble for a little while and then got to JPL, where I worked on Dawn for several years. And then as my Dawn work was kind of winding down a little bit, as the big chunk of the series mission was over, um, they said, well, if you want to find part-time work on something else, you know, go ahead. And so I immediately went to my friends working on Opportunity and said, when can I come back? And so I joined again in November of 2014 where i started out as a sequence engineer so this is the person kind of doing the daily turn the crank make the code that runs the spacecraft Um, it's mostly scripted at this point so you're just kind of sitting there making sure the scripts don't break on anything and then i worked my way up to tactical uplink lead where you're kind of the person in charge for the day so coming up with the general skeleton of the plan of maybe We're going to take pictures for an hour, then we're going to drive for an hour and a half, and then we're going to send the data back on MRO and then go to sleep for a couple hours and wake up and send some more data back on Odyssey, you know, that kind of general plan. And I did that for several years, and towards the end I actually became training lead, so I actually got to train a whole bunch of new people on how to operate opportunity through these sequencing roles. And They also let me start training on how to be a rover driver, so I was actually about a year and a half into the training when uh, we unfortunately lost contact with Opportunity, so I never got to finish my training. Um, It usually takes at least two years, so I'm still a little bitter about that, Hmm. that Mars was rude and cut me off there. So
2: what's the difference between planning and driving?
3: Yeah, so typically we start off the day with a meeting, first like a little tag up to make sure everyone's just kind of on the same page of whether we want to drive today or whether we want to you know, put the robotic arm down on a target, something like that. And then we'll go into what's called the SOG meeting or science operations working group meeting. It's where all the scientists dial in. They've looked at the latest data that came back. And they said, oh, well, we see this rock maybe, you know, 20 meters away. Let's drive to it today. Or, hey, this rock right in front of us is really cool. Let's put the arm down on that. So kind of more refining what targets you're going to look at. If you're taking pictures, what specifically are you going to take pictures of? Kind of filling in that skeleton with, you know, I may have allocated an hour, but in reality, they only need 30 minutes of imaging. And so you can gain back some power by trimming Mm -hmm. it down things like that, making those general trades. And so then as the tactile uplink lead, you then lead kind of the rest of the process of the day. There's a whole bunch of series of meetings, because you go from literally starting from an Excel file with a basic skeleton outline of the plan down to the binary code that you're sending to the spacecraft to execute it. And so you kind of oversee that whole process, making sure that you're not using too much power, you're sending back a good amount of data, you're keeping the rover healthy and safe, you're not going to send any bad commands, like you're kind of in charge of that whole process. Um, And probably what was my favorite part of that job is at the end of the day, you print out a sheet of paper that says um, you can send this plan to Mars, and it's signed by you and the mission manager, who's kind of the one role above you, who's also checking health and safety the commands and I always tried to sign it in pink because girl power right Um, (laughs) and it's also just really funny that we have thousands upon thousands of printed sheets of paper signed to send plants to Mars that seems a little Mm -hmm. ironic to me
0: (laughs) yeah and how big is like the data that you send like on average how long does that take
3: so usually the uplink of a file would take like one to two minutes they're not very big files but we're not sending at very fast data rates so it would take a few minutes but we would tell the rover every morning usually around eleven thirty local mars time to wake up for about 20 minutes so we would have time to send in all the commands that we need to and that was usually plenty of time with margin so say, like, the DSN had an issue and glitched and we didn't get the commands up, we had another chance um, over that
0: 20 minutes. So you have to wake the rover up first, send the commands, and then I guess from that point it might stay awake or does it shut back down again? Like, Or is that just how you begin the day, you know, by, like, first waking it up?
3: Yeah, so at the end of the previous day's code, we basically tell it when to wake up um, so we know when it's going to wake up. Then we make the code that goes in starting at that time and then depending on what science activities or anything we're doing, we can either go straight back to sleep and take another nap or we can start doing science then. And so you kind of daisy chain those together. So the rover always knows when to wake up.
0: Right, okay. Yeah, because if you didn't send that command, does that mean it, I mean, I'm sure that there are other fail-safes involved, but it just wouldn't wake up then the next day, like if that wasn't the final command to wake up?
3: So uh, typically with each plan, we would have what we call run-out saws on the end. So where we just tell it to wake up at 11.30 or so, and we would have like two or three days on the end of that. Um, it also, if that failed, because sometimes we would try and help a plan on Friday and it wouldn't get in for some reason. And so the rover would go into auto mode where it knows to wake up at that time anyway. And we also load comm windows basically when it should talk to us and when it's going to talk to the orbiters like MRO or Odyssey. We would load those about two weeks at a time. And so it would know for a couple weeks at least when to talk to everyone.
2: So when I first reached out to you, it was right after Opportunity had been declared, uh, mis- you know, mission end. I don't want to say the D word, and so I guess my. The biggest question on my mind right now is: Has anything changed since then till now? Like, obviously, you know, this operation doesn't come to a screeching halt as soon as we decide that we're going to stop contacting the rover. So, so what do things look like right now?
3: Yeah, so now we're in the closeout phase. So it's usually a six-month period where you're documenting everything. You're getting rid of the old computer equipment you're kind of rolling people off onto other projects it's definitely a transition period Um, we've had computers that are pretty much as old as the rover sitting around because they're the only ones that Mm. can run the software and so it's still kind of depressing to see these like 15 year old computers being put out to pasture and then you're also just not seeing everyone every day you know we plan the rovers three to five days a week and you were in that room planning for five to eight hours every day and so it's kind of sad to not see everyone every day that you're basically we were like a family and so we've been trying to like have lunches together and happy hours together and that's that's really the part that's hurt the most is just not seeing everyone every day
2: when does closeout finish do you guys have a Uh, expected end date
3: Last I heard I think it was end of August um, which is about oh, 6 wow. months okay. post calling it in February so
2: Okay yeah um we've we've talked about the life cycle and this is the first time I think I've ever talked to somebody during closeout or after close out. So it's kind of a cool, uh, different perspective uh for me. So uh are are you personally planning on working until August? I know that you have some other stuff lined up at JPL that you're wanting to do.
3: Yeah, so I actually am not involved in closeout at all. I just get to see what happens because I'm still sitting on opportunities floor and the yeah. building. And so, yeah, I have I got moved on pretty quickly to other projects. It's mostly, I think at this point, the management essentially that's left doing all the documentation work. Okay.
2: And so when we were in that gray period, after we had lost contact and while we were still trying to get in touch, what level of activity was happening in, in your office at that point?
3: Um, we definitely pared down a lot. Um, a lot of people yeah. got sucked up into other projects, uh, but I very vocally said, I am staying until the very bitter (laughs) end. So by the end, there was like eight of us and it's normally like a 40 person team. Um, Yeah. So we we were pared down quite a bit. Now, during that period, when we first lost contact, it took about a week or so for us to get enough weather reports and see that this was not going to end anytime soon. And Mm. so we went from being really aggressive and trying to hear back from the rover to just a wait and see kind of period. And with that, we um, kind of basically slowed down operations. So instead of planning three to five days a week, we definitely pared down to three days a week. Um, At JPL, we get every other Friday off. So now we decided to enforce getting those Fridays off as well. And our tools are dependent on making a plan for the previous day. So the there needs to be continuity. So part of it was just cranking through the tools and making a plan. It was you know, a bare minimum Mm -hmm. skeleton plan, but making one to feed through so our tools wouldn't break when she came back. Then we tried out a whole bunch of different strategies of trying to hear from it. So we would make basic commands and kind of off-the-shelf commands that we could send to the rover attempting to hear back. And so during this kind of planning period, we would make what we call RAD sheets or radiation sheets and try and send up these commands.
0: Could you expand upon that? I don't know what a RAD sheet is.
3: Yeah. So a RAD sheet is basically the instructions that we send to the person that's called the ACE. They're the ones that officially push the button to uh, send the commands to Mars, and so it's basically a way for them to know when is the DSN expected to come up, when is the rover expected to be awake, what commands are you sending, how long will it take, how long should you wait before sending the next one, just kind of all of those instructions.
0: It's called a radiation sheet. Is that just because you have to radiate the signal electromagnetically? Yep. Is that Okay. Yep. That's an interesting term. <laughs>
2: yep. I don't think I'd heard that one before. Yeah,
0: because I think I would have called it like a broadcast sheet. I mean, that doesn't sound nearly <laughs> as cool, but you know.
3: yeah. Well, as you know nasa and its acronyms are all about making (laughs) things sound cool right so that's
2: true (laughs) okay so so we've we've talked a little bit about just on our show as things were happening about losing contact and kind of waiting and i i like the i don't know it it sounds almost hollywood-ish to be like okay we're gonna make this plan and we're gonna we're just gonna push through until we hear back from the rover so what were the the ebbs and flows of Attempts to make contact because I know that you know for a while it kind of slackened off. Did it, did you guys make some final pushes to really try to get in touch with the vehicle? Like, what did that look like?
3: While the dust storm was still raging on, we decided to kind of lower our cadence um, because we were pretty sure that if it was just as bad as it was, we weren't going to hear from the rover. And so, once we saw from the orbital data that the dust storm was kind of dying down. Um, we started picking up our cadence again, and all we were trying to send was a command telling her, hey, can you please beat back at us? And so we would just send that multiple times. Basically, however long a window we had to talk to Mars, uh, we would just send that command. Because at that point, a lot of our fail-safes had expired. So there's that auto mode I talked about. There's you know, we put two weeks worth of the windows on board when we're going to talk to the rover, that had long expired. There's also what we call an uploss timer. So every time we talk to the rover, we kind of set that time in the future. And every spacecraft has this, where if the spacecraft realizes it hasn't heard from you by X date, maybe its telecom hardware is broken, maybe the antenna is broken or something, it'll start switching through alternate hardware trying to talk. And so that had expired, like we knew all of that stuff had expired at that point. So we were in we knew we were in a fault mode. We just didn't know which one because we knew we had switched low power fault. Did we go into low enough power fault? We lost our clock and went into mission clock fault. We just had no clue. So we were just trying to get her to beat back at us. And any data would have given us a clue of what state we were in and how we could have recovered. And so we tried that for a while, and then we got a picture from Rise that showed Opportunity was Mars dust-colored. She was not her black mm. solar panel covered. And so we knew at that point that she probably wasn't getting enough power to talk to us um, because the dust was just covering the panels and enough solar energy couldn't get in. And so there's a period, well, a couple periods on Mars every year where the winds come through and clean off the solar panels. We've seen it every single Mars year. That we've been on the surface and we knew one of these periods was coming up from about november through end of january and so we decided to slow down the cadence a little bit and think about what we were going to do when we got back from that windy period like how long would it take into the windy period for us to probably get enough power what kind of modes would we be in so we tried pretty aggressively trying to hear a beep towards january Because at that point, we thought we should have been cleared off enough that we could at least get a beep back. And so at the end of January, when we still hadn't heard a beep, we were starting to get pretty nervous because we knew that winter was coming, essentially. And we knew that without our intervention, Opportunity could not survive the winter. So for the last two weeks or so of the mission, we really went into some extreme modes. So trying to command on that backup telecom hardware and then... We tried to recover from that mission clock fault in the blind, uh, which Required generating a new command every time because you're basically telling it, it is now this time. And so every time you send it, you have to send a new command. And you also have to take into account when you send it on Earth is not when you're going to get it there. And then you have to take into account when it's actually going to run. So it was was a bit of interesting time math that we had to do. And so that was our last two weeks. And luckily, other projects are very gracious to us and gave us a lot of DSN Mm -hmm. time. We had no clue when the rover was actually going to be awake, because if the clock is gone, it doesn't know to wake up at 11.30. And so it does have some other kind of backup fail-safes there, And that if it detects a certain amount of power on its solar arrays, the rover will automatically wake up. But we didn't know when that would necessarily be either, so we wanted to kind of span anywhere in the early morning to late afternoon. So luckily for the last couple weeks, we were able to sit there for four to six hours every day trying to send these commands. So I got to be one of the people sitting there doing these final commands just because we were running so short on systems engineers and other team members. And so that was kind of bittersweet to spend my last couple of days sitting in what we call the dark room at JPL, basically our mission control, um, sending up these commands, trying to get her back.
2: So what, what triggered that final determination that we're going to stop attempting to contact the rover? Like what's the break over there
3: basically we had reviews with management you know checking in every once in a while coming up with our strategies and so we had asked for through the end of january at least to go through the rest of this cleaning season then towards the end of january we said well we would like a few more weeks to go through and do these what we're calling hail mary commanding scenarios Mm. of trying to fix the clock and the blind and all these other things. And so they gave us about two weeks for that, which was the right amount of time. So we can rest easy knowing that we literally tried everything. There is nothing else we could have done and extending it for longer wouldn't have helped. So we can rest easy knowing that we did our due diligence.
2: So what else did you guys try other than updating the mission clock?
3: Yeah, so uh, we tried looking at commanding on this backup hardware in different configurations. Maybe one part of it was on site A and one part was on site B, just kind of going through that and seeing if we got in commanding that way. But other than that, since we weren't hearing anything at 1130, which all the rest of the fault windows would have had us at, we were pretty sure that we were in that clock uh, fault. So that's okay. why we we're trying to fix that. And I
2: remember hearing something about a lot of this, um, depended on the orientation of the rover and you, you guys wanted to be able to park it like downhill or, you know, facing the sun. Is, is that right? Or was that spirit?
3: Uh, so on both of them. So Basically, in the winter, you need to be able to kind of tilt the rover more towards the sun. And so when we lost contact, we were actually kind of just coming out of winter. So we actually are tilted in a good configuration for winter, kind of. Because we were coming out, we weren't in like the best configuration but even if you take that into account the fact that she's not in earth control is what we call it uh, basically when we've got the commands running she doesn't know when to sleep properly all that kind of stuff so with that she will not survive the winter even if somehow she was still alive today she wouldn't survive so
0: yeah. So you have to physically tilt the rover like on a hill towards the south because um, it's in the northern hemisphere, right?
3: Um, so we actually look for a northerly tilt. Yeah. So, okay,
0: a northerly yeah. tilt. So yeah, you have to put it like on a hill and tilt toward the sun and that just gives you a little bit more power. Because I had never heard that. I thought that it could power itself just fine, just so long as there was some angle of incidence. But I guess it helps to have it coming directly on to the solar panels. Yeah. So
3: as we were in this past winter, we were going down this Perseverance Valley. And so we would hop between what we called lily pads, basically spots that were more than 10 degrees of northerly tilt. And so you could sit there and do science for a couple weeks and then look for the next lily pad and hop to that one. And so we were just kind of hopping our way down the valley.
0: Hmm. So wherever you do science, you're, you're always going to try to find a spot with like at least 10 degrees of northerly tilt?
3: Um, in particular in the winter. It doesn't matter quite as much in the summer. Um, okay. But during the winter, we definitely need some of that northerly tilt.
2: So I have kind of a, a stupid little question, but it's it's something that I've seen multiple people ask. So there's that... Uh, well, okay. <laughs> so let's talk about tattoos first. Uh, you have a really <laughs> amazing opportunity tattoo.
3: Yeah. So um, you're probably talking about the meme of uh, my battery is low and it's getting dark, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, right, right. So, I mean, obviously the rover didn't send back that in words, right? But that pretty much is the last transmission we got. And so the battery is low, is that we saw 22 watt hours on our array. So to give you context, when we landed, uh, you know, we basically had perfectly clear solar panels, that sort of thing. We had about 950 watt hours. About two or three weeks before the dust storm hit, we were getting about 600 watt hours on our array. And that was a great amount. We could do a whole bunch of science, stay awake most of the day, all that kind of stuff. And in the winter, we were seeing on average like 150 to 200 watt hours, which was you would typically get to do a day of science and then spend the next day charging back up your battery again. 22 was by far the lowest number we had ever seen on the mission. At that point, you are definitely using your battery um, and not getting much sun at all. And so for the it's getting dark part, as I said, I've studied that atmospheric optical depth. And so we have this record. It was almost a daily observation for the rovers because it influenced how much power you had. And so we wanted to track how much dust was in the atmosphere blocking the sun. And so during the past dust storm, we got up to like 4.7, I think was the highest number, which was pretty scary. And we didn't know that we were going to be able to survive that. And so when this dust storm hit, the first day we saw a little bit above one and we were like mm, that's a little concerning let's be a little more conservative with what we're doing uh the next day we got i think five something like that and at that point we looked at the old instructions from the last dust storm one of our engineers had kind of written a dust storm playbook and says if you hit above 4.7 um uh, good luck and so one of our systems engineers took the book and threw it in the recycling bin and said well <laughs> i guess <laughs> we're on our own now and then the next day we saw it at like eight something and we knew we were in trouble at that point point. Yeah. Um, and so we went into emergency mode basically and everyone got together figured out kind of what we should do and what they had done during the last dust storm was reduce the cadence of how often we're talking to the rover because it's actually really energy mm. expensive to use the antennas and so we said, OK, we'll we'll give it one more shot. You know, we'll keep sending these plans. We'll only try and talk the minimum amount possible Do almost no science. And so the last observation we heard was on Sol 5111, and it actually happened to be during JPL's open house. So a lot of the engineers were here talking to the general public. And so that morning, we actually heard um, from the rover um, through the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and that final optical depth that we got was 10.8 and at that point i knew we were in trouble like i i was at home at that point and i just about fainted like it Mm. was bad and to give you context the previous mars record that we saw was actually nine from the viking landers um, Mm. during the global dust storm they went through so in her very last observation uh, opportunity set, yet another Mars record. You know? <laughs> and so I kept telling my friends on Curiosity that they were not allowed to see the optical depth go above that point over there. <laughs> like, just, no. <laughs> and they didn't, so they, they listened. But that was that was kind of depressing. So as soon as, you know, as we were all kind of dealing with this, you know, we went out to dinner, like all the time, we were eating lunch together because it was just as much of an emotional thing as an engineering problem. And so one of the engineers joked of, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we all got like tattoos or dog tags at the end of this of like we made it through the storm. Right. And uh, I don't know, that idea of the tattoo just kind of stuck with me. And given that I studied the optical depth, that I had kind of been a part of Opportunity's team on and off for 11 years, I think it just kind of stuck with me. And finally, when I realized that the end was nigh, I went to the tattoo parlor and got tau equals 10.8 tattooed on my arm. I love that. Of course a lot of people are freaking out at me because you know tau is sometimes 2 pi, right? So, uh a lot of people are uh, like why do you have tau equals 10.8? I'm like, well, tau doesn't always mean 2 pi. <laughs>
2: uh yeah, I, I didn't I didn't uh, think about that and uh tau is better than pi, but Totally different town. So what um, I guess my question is, is what packets actually get sent back? Because you you mentioned you totally uh, completed that thought that I had is, you know, it's getting dark and my batteries are low or whatever is is this great romantic idea. But what data were we actually sending back every day? at that point. So I'm assuming that optical depth was something that you were measuring every day because of the storm and not because that's something that you do every day anyway, right?
3: Uh, so we actually do measure the optical depth every day um, because oh, okay. it influences how much power you're going to have. Um, it's oh, also really important um, for like tracking seasons and cloud cover and dust movement in the atmosphere. So it's actually an observation that we typically take every day. And so that's why we considered it like, important
2: or every night in your case
3: yeah and so normally <laughs> we would take the image with solar filters on the camera because we don't want to like destroy the ccd looking directly at the sun And that actually allows us to get a measurement without the sun just completely overflowing the CCD. And so for these last few observations, we actually switched to using our clear filter that lets in all light. Oh, wow. Because the sun was so dim, that's the only way we could get a picture of the sun.
2: That, okay. So 10 is super, super, I mean, like, I know that it's high, but like, that's, that's very
3: high. Yeah, so you can liken it to kind of that really dark scene like right before a thunderstorm hits you that's kind of what i think of my first inclination was like you'd see the sun as kind of like jupiter and the sky would be kind of dark but thinking about it more it's really more like you're in a thunderstorm kind of feeling you're not going to see the sun and it's just dark but there's still a little bit of light but it's dark so there is a simulation um that my advisor uh former advisor at texas a&m did uh, that shows you kind of what a tau of one, three, five, seven, nine, and 11 looks like. And it's pretty dark at 11.
0: So you have this, this instrument which observes sunlight and then it has a filter. So, how do you account for at least what I assume is dust on that? Because that wouldn't be inaccurate reading because you might not have as much dust on the solar panels. And I don't know how you would account for that.
3: So, all of the cameras will do what we call sky flats. And so you basically use the, the sky as a calibration point to figure out mm-hmm. where the dust is maybe sitting on the lens or that sort of thing. And then you can kind of correct for that later.
0: But the brightness of of the sky, that's also changing, right? Or is it something like at night and you look at the stars?
3: Yeah. So you try and take it um, at like 3 p.m. Um, so the sun is really bright in one direction and then you kind of look in the opposite direction and the sky is typically very, like, uniform at that point. So you're not quite at sunset where you start getting the gradation, but you're past noon, so you're not getting the solar flare edge into your camera. And so sometimes we've done it and then seen clouds in the picture, and we're like, well, we'll have to take <laughs> that again, but... uh you know, accidental science of looking at clouds. What yeah. really can be wrong with that? So. so
2: so, do those calibrations happen on the ground where you analyze the images and then say, okay, now we're going to ignore these pixels?
3: Yeah. So we have a whole pipeline of when the images come down, we essentially can calibrate them. Um, so taking into account, maybe there's hot pixels or these sky flats where the dust is on the lens, that sort of thing. We can kind of correct that all out. So the raw images that we put out don't have any of that correction. It's just straight from the rover to your computer um, the calibration pipeline takes a little bit longer and so you'll see that data come out usually with the pds deliveries so and they could do various levels of calibration of radiance calibration and all sorts of other things um, to kind of take into account brightness and other things so for example with my thesis research i basically had to do my own calibration pipeline and use the raw data because the cameras were not designed to look at tiny point sources of light at night. They're designed to look at bright geology terrain, right? So anything that I wanted to see was basically being calibrated out. So I (laughs) kind of had to do my own thing. So that's why we kind of do all of these different Calibrations on the ground for the different types of science that people are doing.
2: So, what else is coming down when we're talking to the robot? We get, you know, any data collected, all the photos and the and the measurements from the arm and stuff. So, what else is the is the rover telling us other than the raw science data and optical depth and that kind of thing?
3: Yeah, we'll send back what we call telemetry packets, and some of those are engineering packets where it has maybe the temperature of this particular motor or how much current this particular motor used or uh, just kind of all of that little details of things mm-hmm. that you might need to know. Um, so one of the roles that I did was on the downlink side for the mobility and the arm. So essentially any time that the arm moved or we drove, it would of course send back data. Um, so in particular if you're driving it says, well I drove, you know, I think I drove 12 meters. But maybe the type of navigation system we're using, because we can track our position using what's called visual odometry, where you kind of take a picture of the ground, take a step forward a couple centimeters, and then look at the change difference in Mm. the same features. So maybe, you know, a rock moved relative to you a couple centimeters, and maybe you slipped 20%, so you didn't go as far as you thought. And so it kind of can correct that out. So all of those kinds of information of all of those calculations and whatever that it did also get sent back. So basically, the rover keeps a log of everything that it did, all its temperatures, all its currents, anything like that, and sends it all back as well on top of all the science data.
2: Wow. So in those engineering packets, you get like all those debug logs, you don't cherry pick what you want to see that day. You just get everything that it generates.
3: Yeah. So we can kind of tune the frequency. So like when we're driving, um, you know, we can turn up or down the frequency of the data that it's writing out Mm. just based on whether we know it to be relatively safe. So we don't think we'll need a lot of the data to kind of Mm. back calibrate what happened. Um, But if we're doing something really precise or particularly I wouldn't say dangerous, but like kind of stretching the boundary a little bit. We'll maybe turn up the data so we can find out later exactly what happened.
2: Huh. Okay. That's really cool. That That's something that's that's bugged me for a while is... You know what? What exactly are we seeing in these in in the non-science segment of the return data? That's pretty cool. Thank you.
0: You mentioned slippage, and I was wondering how much of that do you experience with opportunity on average?
3: Yeah, so it kind of depended on what tilt we were at, and also what kind of terrain we're at. So you're gonna slip more on a higher slip on uh, a higher tilt. Uh, You're going to slip more if you're in, like, sand versus on hard bedrock. And so they do some tests out, you know, in the desert here in California with kind of engineering models, and you can kind of get a sense of what tilts and what combination of terrain cause different percentages of slip. And so when you're driving, uh, you know, we spent this last bit of time in Perseverance Valley, which was at slopes of 10 up to like 33 degrees. And so you're obviously going to slip a lot trying to climb up these really high tilts. And you just kind of take that into account. You command extra steps of like, you know, we only want the river to go 12 meters, but we're going to have to tell it to go 20 to make it or something like that. So you just kind of take that into account as you're planning your drive and leave some margin. And we can leave in some logic too of, Um, If we're trying to drive to a particular rock, the rover can keep track of where that rock is. And then we can say, hey, rover, if you're more than three meters away, then drive for a meter and then check again. So we can do a lot of that kind of logic as well.
2: Rovers are so cool. (laughs) So um, thank you so much for your time. Our penultimate question is where would you like to be found on the Internet?
3: Sure. So you can find me on Twitter at Planetary Uh, you can also check out my website, which is CarrieBean.com.
0: And our ultimate question is, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be?
3: So I have had this stuffed turtle plushie uh, since I was like one years old. Uh, I would probably bring that. If I was not a space scientist, I think I would have become a marine biologist. I am really obsessed oh. with turtles. So, turtles so, are so cool.
2: what kind of turtle is it?
3: At this point, who knows? Because he is... <laughs> well loved and beaten up at this point um but i do have two red-eared sliders in a tank at my apartment
2: oh cool okay well thank you so much for your time carrie it was an absolute delight to get to talk to you
1: thank you for having me
0: Upcoming spaceflight events, we just got two launches. The first one is on April 30th, and that's the Falcon 9 Block 5 with the SpaceX CRS-17 mission. So, yep, this is launching a Dragon to the International Space Station. This is their 15th cargo delivery. And that will be from Space Launch Complex 40 or just, you know, Slick 40. I like saying Slick mm-hmm. 40. And that's uh, April 30th at 0822 UTC. So, yeah, that's an instantaneous launch window. And, of course, you can watch that on YouTube or wherever. 22 UTC. That's going to be pretty early. That'll be like 3 o'clock in the morning on the East Coast and around midnight on the West Coast. So probably won't see it, but maybe.
1: But I actually looked into what they'll be taking up there, and it's pretty cool. They're going to be bringing the Orbiting Carbon Observatory 3. And so this is a, you know, we've been making... CO2 measurements on the ground since the 50s and what's called the famous uh, Keeling curve but this is going to be uh, spatially resolved CO2 concentration measurements done you know from orbit and so we'll be able to see you know how it changes over cities and in different locations Yeah, and over time because there's a really fun you know yearly trend as you know trees grow and trees die and so that's always fun to watch and then uh, it's also bringing up there the uh, STP h 6 the space test program Houston 6 which is going to carry 8 experiments to the station And of those, I just want to mention some of them are really cool, including one, remember when we talked about NICER on a previous episode, the uh, X-ray telescope on the station? Well, Mm. they're going to be doing a little demo uh, called XCOM, which is going to be uh, essentially testing using x-rays as the means of telecommunications. And NICER is going to act as the receiver for this uh, test
0: experiment. That is really cool. Yeah,
1: and then they got all sorts of other things, uh, a Star Tracker experiment, one in, related to space-based supercomputing. And uh, anyway, just you know, a fun set of experiments going up there. And our other launch is going to be also on April 30th. This will be uh, MOMO, the MOMO rocket, which is a uh, sounding rocket developed by Interstellar Technologies. And it will be launching in a window from 215 to 320 uh, UTC. And so this will be launching uh, presumably from their facilities at uh, Taiki in Hokkaido.
2: Alright, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: Alright, and with that, time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
1: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 enough Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
2: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit the slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at the orbital mechanics.com Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can
1: talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. <laughs>